This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Meanwhile, on an abandoned bookshelf. In this episode, Francois Matarasso dusts down some old words and breathes new life into them. This essay was first written between 2011 and 2013 and has since been revised. It contains many quotations and references, the details of which can be found in the downloadable PDF at www.parliamentofdreams.com. Some of those quotations are written in accents or language unlike mine and that it would be impertinent to mimic. Listeners will forgive me, I hope, if I read them in my own voice. All in this together. Part 1. What's in a name? The term community art came into widespread use in Britain at the beginning of the 1970s, at a time when the cultural experimentation of the 1960s was confronted both by harsh economic conditions and by concerted resistance from a cultural establishment beginning to recognise the nature and extent of the challenge to its authority it faced. Community art was used to describe a complex, unstable and contested practice developed by young artists and theatre makers seeking to reinvigorate an art world they saw as bourgeois at best and repressive at worst. The term fell out of favour at the beginning of the 1990s to be replaced by the seemingly innocuous alternative, participatory arts, though the original term is still used by some people and may even be in the process of rehabilitation. It is also used outside the UK, notably in the Netherlands, Scandinavia and Australia, where it has acquired locally specific meanings with a range of connection to the original theories and methods. Does this change of terminology have any importance? Surely, it's the practice that counts, as the founders of the Association of Community Artists argued in 1971. Anyway, as Juliet famously says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But Juliet is a 13-year-old child, and her question is naive, if idealistic, as the play makes clear. Words do matter. They shape, reflect and shape again how we think. Language expresses us. The renaming of community art is not without meaning. It's both symptom and indicator of a profound change in the politics of Britain after the election of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in 1979. A change that saw individual enterprise promoted at the expense of shared enterprise and a recasting of people as consumers engaged in transactions rather than citizens with relationships. Britain was not alone in experiencing this ideological change, nor was the government its only cause. The collapse of Soviet communism, the liberalisation of the global economy, and advances in information and communication technology were all determining influences. Naturally, the arts were affected by this transformation of British society, economics, culture and thought. As the virtual space in which a community expresses, negotiates and redefines its meanings, art, like language, both reflects and shapes society. Like language, art expresses us. The path from community art to participatory arts while seen as merely pragmatic by those who followed it, marked and enabled a transition from the politicised collective actions of the 1970s towards the depoliticised, individual-focused arts programmes supported by public arts in Britain today. This is inevitably a simplification. There was non-political community artwork in the 1970s and 1980s, and there is challenging, socially engaged arts work now. But the trend of the past 40 years has been from radicalism to remedialism, 
While there have been improvements in aspects of practice within a global trend towards something that might or might not be cultural democracy, community artists in Britain, if anyone still describes themselves as such, have mostly been carried along with the ideological tide of the times. Ignorance of their own history and reluctance to theorise their work, already lamented by Owen Kelly in 1984, has left them largely unable to resist the domination of market economics in the arts or in society as a whole. Today, when the results of that unchallenged domination are evident in economic collapse and a raft of social, political and environmental crises, it's time for artists working with people to ask some hard questions about history, about theory, about practice. It's time to review the journey from community art to participatory arts and ask what was lost on the way. It's time for artists working with communities under whatever name to ask how well their ideas and practice engage with today's troubled world and what contribution they can offer in making a better one. Part 2. Community Art and Collective Action Although connected with older traditions of cultural emancipation, such as the Workers' Educational Association, community arts' immediate roots lie in the artistic, social and political experimentation of the 1960s. It had grown quickly, and by 1974, the Association of Community Artists submitted a list of 149 groups to the Working Party, set up by the Arts Council of Great Britain, to examine the issue. There could not but be diversity of opinion and practice in such a large group of people. Even so, many of those who created the community art movement, and it's significant that it described itself as a movement, had a clear left-wing political agenda. Theatre groups such as Red Ladder and 784 set out to articulate socialist political analyses and raise awareness in the language of the time. For Welfare State, who set up camp in 1968 on a former rubbish tip in Burnley, living in the community was itself a political position. Not far away, Albert Hunt's Bradford Art College Theatre Group was devising plays like John Ford's Cuban Missile Crisis and The Fears and Miseries of Nixon's Reich. Other activists in the visual arts may have had less committed politics, but they still operated within and were sympathetic to a broadly left-of-centre progressivist culture. After all, the British right had had only four difficult years in government between 1964 and 1979. Community art in the 1970s also grew up alongside the much bigger, more mature and more theoretically sophisticated community development movement. In 1953, the United Nations had defined it community development as, quote, a movement to promote better living for the whole community with active participation and, if possible, on the initiative of the community. Although initially linked with decolonization and promoted as an alternative to communism, the thinking and practice of community development spread quickly to urban renewal programmes in the USA in the context of the civil rights movement, and then to Britain. It is not necessary to go far into community development theory or practice here, except to note some key ideas in the UN definition. First, it's concerned with improving the living conditions of the whole community, not of individuals within it. Secondly, it sees active participation as the essential means to achieve that improvement. Finally, it prioritises the community's own initiative, in other words, its own judgement of what would constitute an improvement in its living conditions and how they might be achieved. It should also be noted that this is to be done only if possible, a qualifier that can be considered realistic, open to corruption, or both, according to interpretation. 
By the 1970s, this practice was embedded in many poorer areas of Britain, with community development workers active in the creation and support of tenants' associations, women's groups and similar grassroots organisations. The community art movement in cities like London, Glasgow and Manchester and in the new towns being built to relieve urban overcrowding like Telford and Northampton found natural allies here as well as a body of ideas and experience on which to draw. It did so because many of its leaders were committed to an art that was public and collective, as John McGrath, founder of 784, wrote in 1981. Quote, Theatre is not about the reaction of one sensibility to events external to itself, as poetry tends to be, or the private consumption of fantasy, or a mediated slice of social reality, as most novels tend to be, it is a public event, and it is about matters of public concern. The theatre is by its nature a political forum, or a politicising medium, rather than a place to experience a rarefied artistic sensibility in an aesthetic void. End quote. At about the same time, the Community Arts Advisory Panel of the Greater London Arts Association described community art as an approach that, quote, involves people on a collective basis, encourages the use of a collective statement, but does not neglect individual development or the need for individual expression, end quote. The work they described included a very wide range of artistic action that was mostly ignored by established arts institutions and by the funding system. Outdoor festivals, creative play, inflatables, murals, community printing, worker writing and new media work. It also had room for traditional music and dance, popular forms such as rock music, which, with the emergent punk movement and its DIY ethos, was also developing a political consciousness, and the artistic expressions of people who had come to Britain from the Caribbean, Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Now that the radical performances and festivals like Craig Miller and Easter House have gone, it is the murals painted on the poorer districts of London and other cities that are the most visible remaining traces of this artistic vision. The work of Brian Barnes, Ray Walker and other artists of the time are evocative survivors of community art. The Floyd Road mural in Charlton, South East London, is an emblematic example, painted in 1976 by Carol Kenner and Steve Lobb of Greenwich Mural Workshop with the local residents' association. The mural, still in fair condition after 45 years, shows local people, black and white, resisting the bulldozers of commercial developers. Other images on London's walls show people united against fascism in the 1930s, the Battle of Cable Street, or resisting the nuclear missiles that haunted many people's imaginations at the time, Wind of Peace and Riders of the Apocalypse. The contrast with Banksy's popular and witty, but cynical and essentially individual street paintings, is striking. It is also notable that his work has been commercialised by the publishing art markets in exactly the way that muralists in the 1960s and 70s were resisting. Part 3. An Historical Occasion The development of community art in 1970s Britain occurred at least partly as the art world's response to the wider social changes of the time just as its transformation in the 1990s was linked to the social and cultural changes going on then. The connection with the radical end of popular music, particularly pump, pub rock and reggae, has already been mentioned, and the political struggles evident within the arts were versions of much greater trials. London's murals often depicted solidarity and resistance in idealised forms, 
Unhappily, more vicious conflicts were on the horizon by the end of the decade. In April 1981, a little less than two years after the election of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, the inner London district of Brixton experienced a violent confrontation between local people and the police. Street battles between mostly black youths and mostly white police officers raged for about 48 hours, resulting in hundreds of injuries and the burning of 28 buildings, with a further 117 damaged and looted. Petrol bombs were thrown for the first time in mainland Britain. The riot was triggered by an incident in which a young black man had been stabbed, but it was fanned by a major police operation in the area over the previous days, codenamed Swamp 81, in which the police's power to stop and search people, merely on suspicion, or sus in the street talk of the day, was a source of great resentment, partly because it was used so disproportionately against young black men. The wider background included rapidly rising unemployment as Britain sank into recession and decades of mistrust between London's black population and its police force. For the poet Linton Quasi Johnson, whose record Making History appeared in 1983, this was De Great Insurrection, when it was down in a de ghetto of Brixton that the Babylon then caused such a friction that it bring about a great insurrection, and it spread all over the nation, it was truly an historical occasion. End quote. The Prime Minister did not see it as an historical occasion. For Margaret Thatcher, the events were simply criminal, as she said. Nonetheless, she was forced to institute a public inquiry under Lord Scarman which reported in November 1981 that, quote, complex political, social and economic factors created a disposition towards violent protest, end quote. Before then, however, urban unrest had spread to other parts of the UK. In July, riots took place in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol and elsewhere. Disturbances in the Toxteth district of Liverpool were particularly ferocious, lasting nine days and leading to hundreds of injuries and arrests, as well as massive destruction of property. That month, the number one single in the UK pop charts was Ghost Town by The Specials, which had evidently captured the mood of many young people. Quote, This town is coming like a ghost town. Why must the youth fight against themselves? Government leaving the youth on the shelf, this place is coming like a ghost town. No job to be found in this country. Can't go on no more. The people getting angry. End quote. The specials were the first major British band with black and white members drawn from the working class communities of Coventry. Their anti-racist unity was non-negotiable, embedded in the very name of their independent record label, Two-Tone. The Specials, along with other ska and reggae bands of the time, had emerged from a politicised punk and post-punk music culture that expressed socialist solidarity in Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League. This movement continued through the early 1980s, reaching a high point of public consciousness with Live Aid in 1985 and ending with the Red Wedge Music Collective, that supported the Labour Party's failed 1987 election campaign. After Margaret Thatcher's third successive election victory, musicians seemed to lose their appetite for politics. In 1988, Billy Bragg sang in Waiting for the Great Leap Forwards, quote, Mixing pop and politics, he asks me what the use is. I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses. End quote. Today, an online search for Red Wedge offers mostly shoes, a neat symbol of the shift from politics to consumerism. It has been argued that Thatcher paid little heed to Scarman after 1981, but some things did change. 
Most symbolically, the Suss Law that gave the police powers to stop and search people in the street was repealed in August 1981. Reforms were also made to police procedures and recruitment. Such measures did not, of course, solve the problems of policing diverse and multicultural communities, as subsequent events have shown. For example, in 1999, the McPherson inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and its investigation described the Metropolitan Police as institutionally racist. The Thatcher government also responded to the 1981 riots by investing in urban regeneration, including some cultural initiatives such as the garden festivals advocated by the then Secretary of State for the Environment, Michael Heseltine, and the creation of an outpost of the Tate Gallery in the decaying Liverpool docks. For Britain at least, these were the first steps towards an enthusiasm for cultural-led regeneration, inspired by Glasgow's year as European Capital of Culture in 1989, and enabled by the huge flow of funds for capital investment in cultural infrastructure that followed the creation of the National Lottery in 1994. The ground was being laid for the artistic boom of the late 1990s, even if it was not quite the new renaissance one new Labour minister would declare in 2008 as the thunderclouds of financial and political crises gathered. Culture-led urban regeneration could not be expected to end civil unrest in Britain, nor did it. With the miners' strike in 1984 and new urban riots in 1985, resistance to government policy and state power continued for some years. Indeed, the 1990 poll tax riots are acknowledged to have contributed to the end of Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership. There have been disturbances in the 20 years since then, often, as in Brixton, associated with the policing of inner cities. There is a conscious history of popular rebellion in the idea of British democracy. School children are taught, or were when I was one, about Magna Carta, Simon de Montfort and the First Parliament, the Peasants' Revolt, the Pilgrimage of Grace, the Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, the Peterloo Massacre, the Levellers, the Luddites, the Suffragettes and the Jarrow Marchers. In 1988, the Thatcher government's local taxation reform was given the benign title Community Charge. Its opponents renamed it the Poll Tax, making an explicit connection across 600 years with the unjust taxation that sparked the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. Part 4. Ideas of Community In 1981, the idea of community, so central to the collectivist ideas of community artists, still had popular resonance. As late as 1983, Raymond Williams could write, Quote, Unlike all other terms of social organisation, state, nation, society, etc., community never seems to be used unfavourably and never to be given any positive, opposing or distinguishing term. End quote. Admittedly, Williams was a man of an earlier age, born in 1921 and formed in pre-war working-class Wales and post-war welfare state intellectual circles. By the time of his death in 1988, the idea of community was becoming politically discredited by an ascendant neoliberal ideology. The word was also treated with suspicion by academics and radicals. It seemed tainted, particularly when government co-opted its positive associations to rebrand policies such as the community charge, community policing and care in the community. George Orwell had warned of Newspeak in 1984. It had reached Britain in good time. By the late 1980s, community art was associated, and not always unfairly, with simplistic certainties articulated in work of little artistic ambition. It seemed like Billy Bragg's singing, heartfelt, but not Schubert. And singing pop and politics 
What was the use? Community art looked tired, old-fashioned in the early days of computers, the internet and the creative industries. Its slogans seemed disconnected from its actual practice. It could be criticised for infighting, self-indulgence and obscurantism. It frequently was for its quality and aesthetics. Even some of its practitioners had come to see community art as naive after a decade of Thatcherism, privatised public services and deregulated finance, as its opponents in the arts and politics always said. By renaming their practice participatory arts, artists working in social context seemed to free themselves in a single leap from all this unhappy history. The new term was neutral and descriptive, a simple statement of what the work did. Where community art saw itself as a form in its own right, the addition of the final S enabled the participatory arts to become a method applied to all forms. So, art forms and styles previously criticised as bourgeois could be recast as ideologically neutral, while their advocates adapted the once radical methods of community artists to the cause of advancing civilization, The techniques of cultural democracy were enlisted to the cause of cultural democratization. Because it coincided with deep changes in social policy driven by the neoliberal ideology that had come to dominate politics and public life during the 1980s, the change both reflected and enabled a shift in practice. The change can also be seen in some characteristics of the urban riots that erupted in parts of England in August 2011. Interestingly, neither Wales nor Scotland, where different political cultures have developed in response to neoliberalism, experienced the same conflicts. The similarities between the events of 1981 and those of 2011 are obvious, but the differences are also illuminating and mirror some of the changes in British society evident in its community art and wider culture. Part 5. You should get some of your own. The London riots of August 2011, in the midst of economic depression and a year into the first Conservative-led government since 1997, were the most violent and widespread since 1981. On 9th of August, Claire Burlington, a resident of Woolwich, South East London, reported what she saw on her blog. Quote, the main shopping street, Power Street, was like a war zone, a war where glass, rubbish, fire extinguishers, rubble and mannequin body parts were the major weapons. I couldn't see all the shops as parts of the street were totally blocked off, but this incomplete list will give an idea as to what it was like. Argos looted, M&S windows smashed and looted, all the mobile phone shops looted and smashed, all the pawnbrokers in the side streets, cash converters etc and smaller independent jewellers come pawnbrokers, smashed windows, forced security grills and looted. New look, windows smashed and looted. I thought it was really bizarre that all their window mannequins had gone. Burton, windows smashed and looted. Bon Marché, smashed and looted. Video game shop, smashed and looted. A now unidentifiable shop, possibly a mobile phone shop, burnt to a shell, with walls collapsing into the street and firefighters still putting out the flames. Nat West Bank, smashed windows and looted. End quote. Three large buildings, including a new Wilkinson supermarket, had been torched and a number of other fires had been started. There were many similarities between 1981 and 2011. In both cases, riots occurred as a fairly new and unpopular right-wing government responded to economic recession by implementing large-scale public spending cuts. Again, a police assault on a black man the fatal shooting of Mark Duggan on 4th of August 2011, was the initial spark, 
seeming to confirm perceptions of police racism and injustice among those involved. There was, according to research by the London School of Economics and the Guardian newspaper, a significant sense of political anger felt by those involved in 2011. Quote, I still to this day don't class it as a riot, said one young man in Tottenham. I think it was a protest. He was far from alone. A consistent theme emerging from the experiences of the rioters across England was that they harboured a range of grievances and it was their anger and frustration that was being expressed out on the streets in early August. End quote. However, in the dominant media narratives about the riots, this aspect was overshadowed by a discourse that in theory and rhetoric is very similar to that of 1981. The then Prime Minister, David Cameron, like Margaret Thatcher before him, saw only, quote, pure criminality, end quote, going on to argue that, quote, this was about behaviour, people showing indifference to right and wrong, people with a twisted moral code, people with a complete absence of self-restraint, end quote. The riots did produce large-scale criminality, but that is not unusual in Britain today. The MPs who abused their generous expenses scheme might equally be described as criminals with a twisted moral code. Several went to prison in 2011. The bankers who stole from their clients, fixed interest rates and fueled the economic crisis also showed a complete absence of self-restraint, though few have yet been imprisoned. But focusing only on individual criminality rather than the systems that allow people to behave criminally, or even encourage them to think that doing so is normal, is an inadequate response to a social, economic and political crisis that is systemic. It also does little to prevent a recurrence of criminal behaviour. And one thing we can say about both riots and fraud is that they recur. So, without lessening individual responsibility for individual acts, we must also look at the conditions that made their behaviour not only just possible, but acceptable to people with no existing criminal record. One way into thinking about those conditions is to ask how 2011 was different from 1981. The obvious novelty, widely analysed by the media, is the belief that the 2011 riots were predominantly about personal greed, as young people smashed their way into high street stores to steal mobile phones, computers, trainers, clothes and other consumer goods. One young person interviewed in the LSE Guardian study of the riots said, quote, The rioting, I was angry. The looting, I was excited. Because just money, I don't know, just money motivated. Everything that we done, just money motivated. End quote. Because this image was real, it was easily burnished by media corporations with their own commercial and political interests. Photographs of people looting or even posing with stolen goods were widely published and fuelled public support for unusually tough sentencing by the courts. The initial protest over the death of Mark Duggan was soon overshadowed and the disorder's political dimensions obscured. Instead, the media, itself expanded beyond imagination since 1981, when there was just three TV channels and newspapers were literally and not just metaphorically monochrome, focused on personal stories of victims and perpetrators. The revival of an old moral panic about youth gangs, which can be traced back to fighting between mods and rockers in the 1960s and indeed much earlier, was the media's only suggestion that there was any collective or organised aspect to the riots. Otherwise, it was the increasingly familiar story of selfish individualism, personal greed and moral vacancy, versions of which have already been used to explain the banking crisis, the parliamentary expenses scandal, and media intrusion, phone hacking, and bribery.
That story is neatly represented by the song that was at the top of the UK pop charts in August 2011. It was Swagger Jagger, the first record by Cher Lloyd, who finished fourth in the 2010 series of the popular TV programme The X Factor. Its chorus runs, quote, Swagger Jagger, Swagger Jagger, you should get some of your own. Count that money, get your game on. Get your game on, get your, get your game on. End quote. This is a long way from the socio-political statement of Ghost Town, though the imperative to get some of your own and count that money is just what the looters were doing, perhaps feeling that they were only following the example of the politicians, bankers and celebrities of Britain's sorry elite. It seemed that many people's principal objection to consumer capitalism, was that they didn't get enough of it. One casualty of the Woolwich rioting was rich in symbolism. A mural by Carol Kenner and Steve Lobb was destroyed when Wilkinson's store burnt. It had, in Steve's words, made, quote, the case for communities of the town to live happily together, end quote. There was no sustained critique of power in 2011 as there had been 30 years before. Only rage, frustration and a profound sense of injustice. And so there was no public inquiry into the causes and consequences of the riots, just severe custodial sentences. In the past, political parties and trades unions, community development and education activists, including artists, could give collective form to such feelings. In an era of depoliticized individualism, who was there to organize, analyze, or explain? The absence of an articulated political dimension leaves the individual unquestioned as the central actor in a market economy. The collective we that Linton Quasi Johnson places at the heart of the historical confrontation with Babylon is absent today. In a race for private satisfaction, it's everyone for themselves, and the devil take the hindmost. Part 6. From Radical to Remedial. Participatory Arts and Thatcherism. The key difference of participatory arts in keeping with trends in British economic and social policy throughout the 1980s and 1990s was its attention to individuals rather than communities and the depoliticized nature of its response to their situation. Projects focused less on community as expressed in place and more on groups of people, seen, often by public bodies who provided the funding, as having common problems such as poor health. These problems themselves were treated apolitically for instance as part of a discourse about well-being, rather than the reality and causes of health inequality. People enjoyed and benefited from taking part in these arts projects, but change, such as it was, was mainly personal. Art forms and activities that offered opportunities for celebration, such as parades, carnivals and outdoor events, took precedence over those that demanded more intellectual, aesthetic or political engagement from participants, audiences or the artists themselves. Community art's critical relationship to art and society was often flawed, but since the 1990s it has been increasingly hard to see a critical dimension in participatory arts at all. It is also notable that the term participatory arts has not gained currency outside the arts world itself. It is used largely by professionals, often loosely and sometimes almost as a euphemism. Some admit that the people they work with do not understand it, preferring instead the more familiar concept of community art, with or without a final S. Nearly 40 years ago, Owen Kelly castigated the community arts movement for its failure to capitalise on its early promise or its beliefs arguing that, quote, in refusing to analyse our work 
and place that analysis into a political context, the community arts movement has placed itself in a position of absurd and unnecessary weakness. End quote. It would be wrong to describe participatory arts as being in a position of weakness, given how its methods and at least some of its ideas have become mainstream practice across the arts in the past 30 years. There is much better and easier access to the arts in Britain today than there was in 1970, and the character of the art offered has also changed greatly. The community art movement and its successors have played an important part in achieving that change, helped enormously by greater prosperity, better education, the growth of culture in leisure and other factors. However, that achievement has come, as Kelly argued it had already in 1984, at the cost of compromise with state power and ideology. In the case of community art, it is the focus on individuals and on apolitical analyses that has been the most important change, reflecting two of Mrs Thatcher's best-known political dictums, both dating from the high point of her political authority, after she had won a third election. In an interview for Women's Own in September 1987, Thatcher summarised her belief in the individual, quote, we have gone through a period when too many children and people have been given to understand, I have a problem, it is the government's job to cope with it, and so they are casting their problems on society. And who is society? There is no such thing. There are individual men and women, and there are families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. End quote often paraphrased as there is no such thing as society, this American-sounding statement of individual responsibility became a touchstone of Thatcherism. Six months later, in the House of Commons, Margaret Thatcher neatly encapsulated not just a central idea of her economic policy, but in a different way her ideas about society too, when she said, quote, There is no way in which one can buck the market. End quote. In presenting markets as neutral, even natural phenomena, like the weather, the ideologues behind the Washington Consensus aim to make the decisions of governments and corporations appear as inevitable as rain. If British miners and steelworkers could not produce as cheaply as those of Poland or Korea, that was just how things were. The resulting unemployment was bad luck, or for their harder ideologues, the result of uncompetitive practices forced on decent managers by greedy trade unionists. And since there was no society or community, except when the word might smooth the way for taxation or policing, there was no need or scope for collective action in response. The problem was individualised, so that each unemployed person had to accept responsibility for their own situation. State financial support was gradually reduced to today's subsistence levels and government help was limited to retraining people to take jobs in the new service businesses emerging after deindustrialization. But, as the historian Tony Judd argues, quote, the victory of conservatism and the profound transformation brought about was far from inevitable. It took an intellectual revolution. End quote. That intellectual revolution was also a cultural revolution, and one in which millions were happy to participate through ignorance or inattention, sympathy or self-interest. The arts and cultural sector as a whole did very well in this brave new world of unchecked market consumerism. Rapidly expanding computer technology spawned new art production methods and distribution platforms, and initially made a great deal of money, though those same technologies are now destroying the economic models they once fed on. The term creative industries was coined to describe the financially productive part of the cultural sector though without much awareness of its symbiotic relationship 
with the now dominant neoliberal economic model. So-called creatives came to see themselves as the elite of the knowledge economy, flattered by media-savvy academics like Richard Florida. In Britain, cash from a national lottery founded in 1994 to enrich publicly funded cultural institutions as never before. New theatres, concert halls and galleries sprang up like mushrooms after rain, sometimes even in areas in need of regeneration. Programmes thrived, including those participatory arts activities designed to increase so-called engagement in expanding cultural offer. The cost of this prosperity received less and less attention in a booming arts world, which, like the new Labour governments that backed it, felt things could always be done for the economy's losers. Professor Mark Wickham-Jones, an early analyst of New Labour policy, argued in 2003, quote, New Labour's discourse is littered with a sense of resignation and an indication that remedial, paternal interventionism is the most that social democrats can hope for in the current climate, end quote. Participatory arts were gradually drawn into addressing, or even servicing, the complex symptoms of a more and more unequal society. Increasingly maintained by contracts from public welfare agencies instead of arts bodies, artists working with people had little time to think beyond the immediate problems of their clients or in the new current climate of how to finance their work. Community art, always more interested in causes, was not required. Part 7. All in this together. The most obvious similarity between 1981 and 2011 is that there was an economic crisis then and there is one again, though today's troubles seem to be much deeper. Curiously, the Conservative Prime Minister, David Cameron, has appealed to neglected ideas of community, telling the British people in his first major speech after taking office in 2010 that, quote, we're all in this together, end quote. But if we are all in this together, the important question is what this is. A competition or a community? Is it about individual pursuit of personal enrichment or shared enterprise for the common good? Community, in theory and in practice, has real problems. But since it is a result of human action, it would be naive to expect otherwise. Injustice and inequality, the abuse of power and the oppression of minorities, conformism and repression, these and all other human failings exist in communities of every kind and culture. They must be resisted in community as much as anywhere, but they do not in themselves invalidate community as a goal or an idea, any more than they invalidate the human beings who enact them. Indeed, Though modern sociologists like George Eudice doubt the warm persuasiveness that William saw in the idea, being part of a community remains a widely held aspiration. We are, after all, social animals. Studies of the motivations of volunteers consistently show the importance that people place on being part of a community and contributing to meeting its needs. In the arts, the idea of supporting community is a key factor in motivating the thousands of volunteer promoters who bring touring shows to British villages. If Robert Putnam identifies both the decline of community in America and nostalgia for an idealised past, these things matter because recognition of community's value is the foundation of his analysis of social capital. There is no going back to community art as it existed in the 1970s, nor should we want to. As John Fox, co-founder of Welfare State, has written, quote, Nostalgia dulls reality. End quote. Today's world, its opportunities and problems are very different, and many aspects of art practice have matured and improved. But there are ideas from that time that need revisiting, 
particularly the recognition of collective interests alongside individual ones, and the readiness to question systems, whether in society or in art. We do not know what kind of world is emerging from the huge economic, political, military, social and cultural upheavals we are living through, but we can meet it in different ways. There are those who, wedded to the hegemony of the past 40 years, believe that it will be restored. Perhaps they will be vindicated in the short term, but all systems fail, and the most wasteful fail quickest and hardest. If community art has a future, under whatever name, it will be because it has renewed itself, shedding ideas and practices shaped by a failed ideology, and searching out new ways in which artistic engagement can help people meet the world as it is, and perhaps make that meeting better for everyone concerned. That will require hard work with little money. It will require constructive cooperation and openness to other ideas, experiences and values. It will require admitting our weaknesses and our failures, especially those we like best. It will require engaging with history and theory, debate and experiment, and always in language that is inclusive and democratic. It will require listening to those who've gone before and have experience, and to those who have never been listened to, and whose experiences have been marginalised, because they have new ideas about a world unlike the one that has been. It will, in short, require a lot of us. But it might produce a community art practice that is rooted in humanist and democratic ideals, that questions assumptions, including its own, that is ethically engaged and politically aware, that sees money as a means, not an end, that gives people skills for life, not just for work, that is cooperative with others and competitive with itself, that is optimistic and joyful, It might, in short, foster a culture worth celebrating and an art to empower us. This is the last in the present series of Old Words by François Matarasso on meow.net. Like the previous essays, the full text and references can be downloaded as a PDF from www.parliamentofdreams.com. If you would like to be informed about Meow's forthcoming podcasts and activities, please subscribe to the monthly newsletter at www.miaaw.net. Thanks for listening. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.